0: Hi guys, welcome to Raw Talent, a podcast where we interview people from around the world working in the tech industry in different fields of computers. In this episode, we have with us Mr. Sandeep Singh, an ex-army officer and now a co-founder and CTO of Data Channel as well as the CTO of Decision Tree Analytics. I've had the pleasure to work with him and he has immense work ethics and tremendous knowledge of what he's doing. He has more than 22 years of experience in this field. Watch his episode to understand his journey and how he manages everything while still doing awesome side projects and what are his tips for college students appearing interviews. This is our podcast. Uh, This is episode number three. Uh, Our podcast name is Raw Talent and uh, we have invited you out here so if you could Tell us more about yourself first.
1: Okay, so I have uh, close to about 23 years of uh, industry experience by now and uh, (coughs) as on date I'm working as the chief technology officer of a data analytics company and in parallel we have another startup uh, where we are trying to build a data aggregation and automated machine learning platform. Mm -hmm. Before this uh, you know, I've done my BTECH and M-Tech in computers. Uh, I've handled a lot of positions in large organizations. I was with the Indian Army for about uh, 20 years. And I've handled their IT systems, uh, set up their databases at the Army headquarters level. And also been involved in designing disaster recovery solutions and business continuity plans for them. Mm-hmm. So that's my
0: background. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. Uh- How was your experience in Army and uh, what was your, like you told the basic role in your IT in Army, but uh, if you can tell us more about what uh, the work that you did in Army and how is it different from what you are working on right now?
1: Okay, so uh, my Army career actually started uh, as a typical Army soldier where I had nothing to do with uh, technology. Mm -hmm. And... uh, during the course of things, I ended up going and doing my engineering degree and then uh, my M.tech, And then landed up in a, an appointment where I was responsible for maintaining uh, quite a legacy application. It was actually an application built in COBOL, cool. handling the entire HR uh, aspects and database of the entire Indian Army.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, as we started maintaining it, we realized that at one point in time, the development of that application had come to a halt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, for the last 14-15 years, it was just being maintained.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, that's when we took up a project of trying to modernize that entire application. And that is actually where I started to get a real hang of uh, technology and how to go about things. The volume of data was very large. The kind of hardware that we had was quite abysmal in the... To give you an example, we used to serve a website with, which used to get about uh, one and a half lakh clicks a day out mm-hmm. of a Pentium two desktop machine. So I had that, Pentium in my laptop. <laughs> that was the state uh, when we, you know, actually started working on these systems. And uh, over a period of three to four years, we migrated the entire stack of applications. There were close to about 500 applications from Cobol and Pro-C. I don't know if uh, today you guys would have heard of that language called Pro-C. No. It's essentially C embedded with SQL. Okay. So uh, it's a proprietary language from Oracle. We migrated about 200, 250 applications from Cobol and about 250 applications from Pro-C to Java and uh, a mixture of Java and Mm Pro-C. There were certain applications which were too large for us to, you know, migrate with five and a half, six, six lakh lines of C code. So we didn't want to uh, migrate those applications. We just created wrappers around them and started to serve those same applications with a web front end in front. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that time, this this was not a, uh, you know, done thing. This is I'm talking about Mm -hmm. 2000, 2001 when uh, JavaScript was not there, Mm -hmm. Ajax was not there. So making a call to a server, getting our processes flowing, getting its state and sending it back to a web mm-hmm. server was something that was not really done. Okay. And uh, um, as we started working on this, we realized that uh, there is so much happening in the technology field, so we started building web-based applications, mm-hmm. and started moving towards Java server pages, which was the in thing in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, towards the end of about 2003 and four, we started to really work on JavaScript in Ajax. Okay. So uh, at
0: the beginning. Yeah. Beginning. There were no
1: libraries then to yeah. make Ajax calls, you could make an HTTP request, uh, have a loop which would keep checking the status of that request mm-hmm. in okay. the background.
0: Literally hard-coded. Yeah.
1: Literally hard-coded. <laughs> so there was no concept of promises, no concept of uh, waiting for that request to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's how we started building our web applications. But the uh, beauty of programming is that if you understand programming concepts, algorithms, data structures, then a language or framework or the way you code really doesn't matter. Hmm. You can adapt from COBOL to terminal applications to Java applications to web-based programming uh, fairly simply.
0: Exactly. So you have basically seen the start of programming till now, like you have seen the ev- uh, evolution of it. I wouldn't say
1: that, the programming did exist before me, there was assembly level programming, there was <laughs> Fortran yeah. and COBOL and Pascal based programming and then, but uh, typical server client
0: programming, uh, you know, we were right at the starting of that. Hmm. So uh, tell us more about what you do now and about your company and the startup.
1: Okay, so uh, I've actually always been handling data more than uh, doing programming. Mm -hmm. Even in my previous role, I was also the database administrator. We were maintaining really large data sets for the army. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were also doing a lot of analytics around that data. There were a lot of insights we used to generate. Although we used to do that using, you know, C and other applications, uh, we had no idea of machine learning or -hmm. data science. This was not something that was really right. known at that time. And the reason was you didn't really have the processing power. Mm,
2: Right.
1: Uh, even though conceptually in mathematics and statistics, all these concepts existed. Mm-hmm. People could run all this on a mainframe computer, but on a typical server, you were really not able to run this kind of code. So uh, it was only towards the end of my army career where we started really looking at data science and machine learning. And I started picking up that uh, along with the other jobs that I was doing. And kind of self-taught in machine learning and AI. And after I quit the army, I actually joined this company to learn more. And uh, here, essentially, what we do is uh, we have three different verticals. We have a business intelligence and reporting or dashboarding vertical. Mm -hmm. We have a machine learning and AI vertical. And to support these two you obviously need data engineering, so there is a data engineering and a technology side. Mm -hmm. Uh, We work with a host of companies in retail, e-commerce, digital marketing, media Mm -hmm. domains and essentially we do deliver uh, either BI or dashboarding projects or machine learning and AI kind of projects. Mm -hmm essentially data-driven. We we are not into NLP or natural language processing or making a bot. So not that kind of AI or deep learning. But supervised machine learning is uh, where our strength lies. Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, you were telling about a startup as well that you are doing. uh, Yes. So that
1: is a product that we started working on essentially as an in-house tool for our data engineering teams. What we realized was... uh, 80% of the time in a data analytics project actually goes into activities which are not productive Mm -hmm. towards the end uh, goal of your, you know, uh, getting an insight out of it. And they're very repetitive tasks. You have to connect to a data source, get data, uh, transform it. uh, As we were saying, 80% of the tasks actually in a data analytics project are really repetitive in nature. So Mm -hmm. you connect to a data source, uh, get the data transform it, make it ready for a machine learning model to run. So it is that part that we tried to automate using uh, actually a bunch of Python scripts initially. And what we realized was uh, this is something that every data analytics team or every company that is working on data would inevitably need. Mm -hmm. So we started to build that out as a, a SaaS product. It's essentially a B2B SaaS product. It started off as a data aggregation platform. Now, uh, in a typical mm-hmm. organization, your data could be lying in, in a host of cloud applications. Say, for example, if you're using Salesforce for your CRM or you're using uh, Zoho as a CRM or you have some digital marketing data, which is in Facebook ads or Google ads,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or you may be using, say, Stripe for your e-commerce yeah. payment. So, uh, or you may be using some kind of financial software like QuickBooks or zero for that matter. So your data is actually strewn across all these platforms. And all of them have APIs and you can access those APIs. But then getting the data out out of those platforms, loading it into a a, a data warehouse or a single source of truth on a regular basis uh, without failures Mm -hmm. is is a task in itself. And it needs to be done before you can actually start making sense out of all Mm -hmm. of this data. So typical processes uh, would involve going to these dashboards, downloading this data into Excel sheets,
2: mm-hmm.
1: crunching the data manually in Excel, and then uh, you know using all this for insights. So uh, our product essentially what it does is it can connect to any uh, cloud application which has got an API. Uh, it can also connect to all relational databases, flat file stores like uh, root file system or an Amazon S3 mm-hmm. or Google Cloud, uh, then it can connect to uh, various uh, email applications or Dropbox like services and can pick up data from any of these sources uh, on a schedule, clean that data and push it into a data warehouse. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially what it started off as, as a data aggregation platform alone. So once we had, uh, you know, hold of all this data, we uh, realized that the next logical step is to visualize it. Mm. So that's where we started to build a visualization engine. And uh, now we have a full-fledged dashboarding and reporting uh, in also as a part of this entire product suite. Uh, And now we're working on building an automated machine learning platform, which can take this data and actually deliver insights. Mm -hmm. So we're starting with the relatively simpler use cases of uh, regression and classification. And we intend to actually graduate to more complex use cases as we go along.
0: So, uh, for the people who are watching this, uh, if you can uh, dumb it down a bit, what is automatic machine learning or auto ML as it is called? Okay, so uh, a typical machine learning
1: process involves uh, six to seven major steps. Mm -hmm. So, the first step is obviously to get the data and then you would do something called exploratory data analysis or EDA as it is called. Hmm. So the step of EDA is actually where you familiarize yourself with what the data is. Hmm. For example, how many columns, uh, what are the data types, hmm. in which column, how many null values exist, hmm. how much of data is actually missing, or what uh, are there any outliers. So there are a lot of uh, exploration around the data that is needed to be done. Now once you're familiar with the data and you understand the business problem, you would then go about doing something called feature engineering, mm-hmm. which means creating features out of the data that you have. For example, if I have a, I am, I'm looking at say an e-commerce uh, store sales
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I have the date of the order. Yeah. So okay. I can extract a lot of things out of this, whether it was a working day or a or a holiday,
2: mm-hmm.
1: whether it was a Monday or a Sunday,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what time did the order go in? Was it peak working hours of say 11 a.m. or middle of the night at 12 a.m.? So there's a lot of data that can come out of a single column. Mm -hmm. Now that is called feature engineering. So using existing columns, you generate a lot of other features. Mm -hmm. And those features are what actually add uh, onto the accuracy of your machine learning model in the end. Mm -hmm. Now once you've made all these features, now there is a step of feature selection. Now you may make... uh, 50, 60, 100 such features, not all of them will be actually relevant mm-hmm. and some mm-hmm. of them may have very high degree of correlation, uh, which means say you have somewhere in your data a flag called completed and mm-hmm. you're trying to predict how many of these tasks will get completed. Mm-hmm. So this will, this data is actually causing data leakage, that means if this data column remains in your mm-hmm list of data. So the neural network will very, or the machine learning model will immediately pick up. Even this thing column is saying completed, that means the task is actually completed. Right. So you have to remove these kind of columns, which can okay. cause data leakage. Mm-hmm. So you will do something called feature selection, where you will remove certain columns,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you'll drop certain columns which have absolutely no correlation. Mm-hmm. So there are two extremes, either a column will be very highly correlated with the target variable that you're trying to predict or classify, mm-hmm. or it'll have no correlation. In both cases, you would not consider those columns. So you would drop these features. That's uh, the step called feature selection. And post that, you will do something called flattening or preparation of data so that a neural network can take it. For example, if you've got, uh, say, countries or cities, Mm -hmm. now that's typical text-based data. A neural network or a machine learning model can't take that. Mm-hmm. So you have to do something called one-hot encoding or you will convert that into, into some form of numerical data. Mm-hmm. So there are encoding techniques for this. Right. So that is the next step. Once you have this encoded data, then you will start building your model. Mm-hmm. Now that building of model itself, you understand what is the business problem, so you know, okay, I'm doing some kind of prediction problem
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I have time series data, so you may pick up a regression model. Mm-hmm. This is again where the data analyst experience comes in. So you'll pick up a model Mm -hmm. and you'll try to make a baseline result. If I know there's a prediction problem, I run a simple model with the default uh, set of parameters and I get X value out of it. So now that becomes like my baseline and which is what I now have to improve. So -hmm. I will try different models Mm -hmm. with different parameters and I'll try to arrive at what model is the best which can give me maximum accuracy. Now this is called model preparation model tuning step. Hmm. Now once this step is done then I'll be able to deploy my model and then get predictions out of it. Hmm. So this is the entire data engineering or machine learning pipeline as it is called. Okay. Now automated machine learning what it tries to do is it tries to automate maturity of these steps. Hmm. So Uh, Most of the AutoML engines right now on the market, which includes uh, engines like Google Cloud, AutoML and Amazon, SageMaker and others. They start with the step where you have prepared data available. Mm
2: -hmm. Right.
1: So, essentially what they do is they'll take on from encoding of the data onwards.
0: Exactly.
1: So, from uh, features, till feature selection and preparation Mm -hmm. and choosing of features is what an analyst has to do manually. Right. And from there onwards, what they'll do is they'll take that simple prepared data, right. try and learn, uh, run as many types of model on it as possible, mm-hmm. pick out whatever is performing best and give you the best performing model with the best set of hyperparameters. And that is essentially what is being called automated machine learning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, whereas what we are trying to actually achieve is to go one mm-hmm. step beyond mm-hmm. this and even try and automate
0: the pre-processing steps.
1: The pre-processing steps in an intelligent manner.
0: Right.
1: And that is where the challenge lies. Up.
0: So do you think you are taking away jobs of data analysts in that and because you are taking away the manual aspect, right?
1: Uh, not necessarily because there is a lot of value add that the data analysts can do still.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: there's a lot of business knowledge that is needed still.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, while we are aiming to build this... In an intelligent and automated manner, we know we are at least a few years away from achieving that kind of accuracy where you can actually replace a data mm-hmm. analyst. Mm-hmm. But for simple standard problems and use cases, mm-hmm. yes you can churn out solutions which uh, in minutes which will be equal to what are better than average data analyst would achieve in months. Right. So in that aspect, yes, There will be certain uh, loss of jobs when such automated ML, auto ML solutions come to the market. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But that has been the case always. Uh, We've heard AI will start coding and they'll start generating software. We've been hearing this for years, it's not yet happened. You still find jobs for programmers. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So there will, jobs will still remain for data analysts. The kind of work that they'll do will probably differ. So they'll need to get involved more in the business side. And try to understand that data more and try to in- interpret it better, ask better questions. Yeah.
0: So, like the data, that rather ETL than- layer we were talking about, that so so an ETL layer is transforming the data according to your needs. Yes. As, as much as I understood. Yeah. So, maybe that uh, using that ETL layer intelligently would be can be a job of a data analyst. asking the right questions
1: first Mm -hmm. would be the biggest job that a data analyst can do. Understanding, familiarizing with both the business problem and what data is available Mm -hmm. and then asking the right set of questions Mm -hmm. is the first job that a data analyst will need to do. Now you realize that the skill sets that are needed for that Mm -hmm. are slightly more than what you learn in a typical six months data analyst machine learning course. Now, there you may learn uh, the details of five models or regression models and classification models and a little bit of Python Mm -hmm. and data wrangling. But you will not understand how to ask these intelligent questions. Mm -hmm. This is where uh, experience will come in. So
0: suppose someone wants to go into data analyst field, like many of my friends are interested. So what would you suggest to them, like this, that six months course is one thing, but apart from that, getting that uh, ability to answer. And like ask intelligent questions and also develop in that
1: way. Yeah, so that will come uh, necessarily out of industry experience firstly. Mm -hmm. So choose your internships wisely, choose the projects that you do wisely, participate in as many Kaggle competitions as you can. Mm -hmm. Uh, That will teach you how to ask the right questions. There -hmm. are so many data sets available, public data sets available. Take those data sets, see what can be done out of it. Mm Uh, don't restrict yourself to what the question, uh, competition is saying. You have that data, think of what all you can do out of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now that kind of uh, habit of thinking
2: mm-hmm.
1: out of the box is what will sustain you in your career as a data analyst going forward. Right. Not the, the repetitive data engineering, data managing tasks which currently analysts are doing.
0: So I mean uh, it applies to other fields as well like not only data analysis. If you- know how to think properly, how to think out of box, uh, how to think creatively, what I would call it. Uh, that can certainly help. Like, Let's, let's move from data analyst to, let's say web development. I'm into web development. Right sure. Now. So uh, the same
1: thing applies there. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, possibly to uh, create a chatting app like we were trying to do the other day, you would yeah. have had to write some thousands of lines of code. Right. Today you can pick up a framework and do it in say 20 lines of code and you can have it up and running. Mm,
2: right.
1: So it is intelligently picking up what libraries, intelligently picking up the use cases, mm. how to optimize, how you're you know, laying out everything, thinking about the UI, UX before you start designing. There's a lot of steps that uh, you have to follow
2: mm. and
1: that is exactly the kind of thinking that you'll have to bring now to data analytics as well. Mm. Because now you will have all these frameworks and things already ready and available. Yeah. How to use them intelligently is where uh, you decide to differentiate yourself.
0: Right. So it's like uh, even if there are a lot of libraries, it will still not uh, replace anyone because you need to know how to choose a library yeah. properly. So okay, next, next uh, topic, let's talk about what you do outside of work. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's talk about your projects, your personal projects, uh, how do you learn so, new stuff, what are you learning?
1: Uh, one advice that I will give to anybody who is thinking of a career in IT is that you should always have uh, at least two projects of your own, personal projects, mm-hmm. always going on together, <laughs> along with whatever you're doing at work. And should it be the same field or it could be anything? Anything. If, mm-hmm. if you're passionate about that same field and you want to do it in the same field, mm-hmm. no problems. Uh, Preferably, it should be some other field. Uh, Even if the technology stacks are same, Mm -hmm. the implementation or the utility of that should be something different. Mm -hmm. So as as long as you have these couple of side gigs and side projects going, you will remain uh, innovative, Mm -hmm. you'll think differently, you'll know how to, you know, react to new situations quickly. It keeps you kind of on your toes also and keeps you in the habit of learning always. Mm -hmm.
0: So what are your
1: two projects right now? So one of my uh, projects that I'm working on is essentially a, a trading platform. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to do is build a automated trading platform. Essentially it is a set of Python scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I dumb it down to <laughs> that. Uh, it's a set of Python scripts which gets all the market data, mm-hmm. uh, analyzes uh, data about the stocks, tries to do a prediction of... Uh, what direction the market will move in which stocks will try to m- will move up or down mm-hmm. and based on certain rules that i have uh, thought of mm-hmm. it takes a decision to buy or sell right. and then executes those decisions of buy and sell using uh, a stock broking api mm-hmm. uh, and does the management of the portfolio money risk everything on its own so do you would you call it successful uh, it has been successful in the trials that I've done. I've done uh, almost about eight months of trial now, mm-hmm. and I have really had uh, very very good results in very topsy turvy market conditions.
0: So, uh, what? what uh, why would you like do that? Wouldn't it be risky? For uh, first of all, because it's your own money. Uh, secondly, why? Uh, how are you trusting it to keep your money secure and keep on investing? Even though we have all heard of the risks of day trading and algorithmic trading, etc.
1: So, algorithmic trading. Firstly, uh, <coughs> just take two minutes to you know clear off, clarify some of these terminologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these terms like algo trading or algorithmic trading are kind of loosely used at times. Uh, they mm-hmm. they actually cover a, a broad spectrum of trading activities. Now, uh, true algorithmic trading is something called, actually called high frequency trading. Okay. Now That is essentially done by very large financial uh, institutions and very large financial houses. Mm-hmm. And they have generally co-located servers along with the exchange. Mm-hmm. And what they are trying to do is get in and out of the stock market or in, out of positions in mm-hmm. microseconds, okay. which is why it is called high frequency trading. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of orders going in at very, very short intervals and they are trying to take advantage of the price fluctuations
2: mm-hmm.
1: within those short uh, time frames. Right. Well, that's actually algorithmic trading as the stock exchange defines it. Mm-hmm. If you go and try and take an algorithmic trading firm license, yeah. this is what okay. SEBI or the stock exchange describes automated trading as. What we are trying to actually do is is actually do automated order processing or order placement.
2: Okay.
1: Not algorithmic trading. Right. Okay, so... Uh, Algorithmic trading essentially can be done also to do something like which we were discussing the other day, arbitrage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In one market the price is low, mm-hmm. the same stock is being sold at in the Bombay Stock Exchange and National, and stock, national exchange. stock Exchange. Yeah. In Bombay Stock Exchange the price is 1 rupee lower than National Stock Exchange.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I can buy here, sell here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that is arbitrage. Right. So uh, algorithmic trading is also done there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But to make money out of this you really need very large uh, so sums we- of money. And very large technology bases and, uh, you know, server farms and all that. Mm-hmm. So, which is not possible for an individual investor to do. Right. So, for individual investors, what you can do is, you know, have an account with a stockbroker, mm-hmm. log in every day, see the condition of the market, place those orders. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, that is the process that we are actually trying to automate in, in the kind of project that I am talking about. So, day trading, we would call it? Not even day trading, it can okay. be at any time frame. It okay. can be longer time frames also.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That depends on uh, the kind of rules that you set.
2: Okay.
1: For example, if I if I set uh, in my uh, application that okay, I want 1% profit and you come out, most probably I'll hit that
2: mm-hmm.
1: in, in a day. Right. But if I set it at say 15% mm-hmm. profit, then I might not hit it in one day, two days, three days. It may mm-hmm. happen over a month. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the risk reward ratios that you set. Now right. uh, coming to the second part that you were saying, how am I able to get the confidence of putting in my own money yeah. in this kind of tough, tricky conditions? So the first aspect of investing is always doing something about risk management,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that is where I spend most of my time uh, studying as well as developing this particular project. Mm-hmm. So the first aspect of risk management is that you diversify. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. That
1: means if I have one lakh rupees to invest, I don't invest one lakh in one share. I can mm-hmm. invest. 10,000 in 10 or 5,000 in 20 Mm. or 25,000 in Mm 4. So I have to arrive at an optimal uh, figure for this diversification. Mm -hmm. So that is one aspect of controlling my risk. Not everything will go up or down simultaneously. It's it's
0: highly probable that not everything will
1: go down. And then out of these 20, I can do something called sector distribution. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So you have IT, pharma, Mm -hmm. in a situation Mm -hmm. like today also pharma is still going up because Uh, usage of medicine is going up. Right. FMG. Telecom is going up. Mm. FMCG is going up. Mm. Financials are down. Yeah. So if I diversify sector-wise, again I can control the or manage the risk. Mm-hmm. And then is the actual absolute risk in one single position? Mm-hmm. Say I decide to go with ten stocks, ten thousand each. Mm-hmm. Now how many do I buy?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, do I put the entire ten thousand? And what is the place where I say, okay, I have had enough loss in this? Now I need to exit. Mm -hmm. That is a condition called stop loss. loss, I need to stop my loss at some point. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So uh, how do you figure out that stop loss? There are again mathematical formulas. I have my own formula Mm
2: -hmm.
1: of doing it. I don't accept more than 1% risk Mm -hmm. in any position. 1% of my total capital. If I have invested 1 lakh, the moment I have 1,000 loss in any stock, Mm -hmm. I will exit that. Okay. So that is what guards me against sudden sharp falls like the ones which happen right now mm-hmm. to COVID.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or when uh, Iran oil crisis happened or yeah. the attack happened. So in those kind of days the market will fall 4-5%. Mm-hmm. But if I have stop losses in place and my software is constantly monitoring the prices, mm-hmm. the moment it sees that kind of a sharp drop and uh, the price goes below my stop loss, it will exit. Mm-hmm. So that's how I'm managing the risk.
2: Okay.
1: And still, you know, you, uh, before putting in your own money, you still need to verify all this. So, before I put anything on the market, I wrote a comprehensive back-testing mm-hmm. platform for this, where I could actually test this over last 10 years, 11 years. So, you can choose periods like, say, 2008 or 9 financial crisis, mm-hmm. where you can simulate this kind of market conditions. Right. And you run this over that period, and you will mm-hmm. get to know whether it will actually be able to control the risk or not. So that backtesting step is really, really important.
0: So for someone who is starting out, uh, if uh, I or someone like, like them wants to start with this project, uh, what are your steps that should be followed? So uh, obviously
1: you need certain technical know-how, <laughs> which would uh, be you know related to accessing an API, placing an order on the API. Mm. Getting the data from an API, storing it in a database. Mm. So assuming that you have the relevant technical skills for that mm-hmm. and you can do it in any language. I'm more comfortable with Python so I did it in Python. Mm. The second step that you will need is once you've got the stock market data, you have to decide what to buy. So you have to do certain, some, something called an analysis on that data. So there are two ways in which you do analysis of stock market. There's a fundamental analysis mm-hmm. and there's a technical analysis. Mm. Fundamental analysis essentially means analyzing the uh, fundamental ratios and uh, you know issues of with the company. Mm. What what is its uh, say return on capital? Mm-hmm. What is its return on equity? What is the price to book ratio? Book ratio. Yeah. So there are certain ratios that are very well defined, and mm-hmm. you analyze it based on those ratios. Right. So that's called fundamental analysis. That can also have inputs like quality of management and mm-hmm. certain uh, you know. Issues which are more subjective. Mm -hmm. And then is technical analysis. Technical analysis essentially means looking at the price movement and the trends. Mm. So you only have five inputs here. You have the price movement, open high, low, close, over whatever time period Mm. and the volume that was trading. So the price and volume action is what you are trying to study and you are trying to pick out trends in that price and volume action. If the price is going up with very high volumes. Mm-hmm. It is likely to be a very strong upward trend. Right. So you would r- want to ride that trend. <laughs> you would want to buy that stock. And if the, if volume the opposite is, is true, yeah. if the stock is going up but, but the volume, volume is it, low, so it, you it, may not want to it, you know go there because yeah. you, it may be a false kind of peak yeah. and it may just fall back again. Mm-hmm. So there are certain indicators like this. There are a lot of mathematical indicators. There are certain libraries mm-hmm. which can calculate these indicators for so so using those uh, rules, you can essentially define your own strategies. Okay. If so-and-so indicator is beyond this value, mm-hmm. I will buy. Right. These are the kind of strategies that you write.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Uh, you can have one strategy, you can have multiple strategies, you can have a polling of strategies, which is what I follow. Mm-hmm. I have about seven different strategies that I have backtested over long periods
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I take a kind of a poll from all these seven. As long as 5 out of these 7 strategies are telling me buy or sell, I would take that decision. Mm. So that depends on you how you want to implement it and definitely my advice would be backtest all this. Mm. As thoroughly as possible, spend some months on backtesting all this. Uh, test it over different kind of stocks in different kind of market conditions mm. for different lengths of time.
2: Right.
1: Okay. And uh, then whatever is your best performing strategies or set of strategies, You use that to decide.
0: Okay.
1: And then just place an order with the API. Then place an order with the API. So, the kind of reading or knowledge that you will need is is two kinds. One is the technical knowledge and the other is knowledge of financial markets. Mm -hmm. So, I would recommend a a starter or a newbie to first start reading about what stocks and markets are, Mm -hmm. how they behave, what is the role of exchanges. Then read a little bit about fundamental analysis just for your knowledge Mm -hmm. so that you can follow the... You know, current news cycle and mm-hmm. financial news and financial newspapers. Then concentrate more on the technical analysis part. Understand the role of these indicators, understand how to identify these trends, mm-hmm. how to read a chart,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, look at candlestick patterns on a chart.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Once you are able to do all of this, uh, then you can actually sit down and start writing something like uh, this particular project.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, if you see uh, the entire life cycle of something like this, it will nothing less than about a year's work for right. you to and a uh, year is a very good uh, duration for a side project. Hmm. Yeah.
0: So uh, you're saying that we should have longer side projects. Yes. An year based project. Not so small projects like smaller,
1: a So there tabletop. will be uh, smaller milestones within this. Now mm-hmm. if you have to build something like this uh, you will first sit down and you just write one piece of code which will fetch the data from API and store it.
2: Yeah.
1: Now that can become a mini milestone for you. Mm-hmm it will teach you a certain uh, set of skills and you keep that code aside to plug it into your larger Mm -hmm. project. Uh, Then you can, say, look at calculating these technical indicators that can be a project in itself. writing the backtesting platform. Mm -hmm. So there will be smaller projects or smaller milestones along Mm -hmm. the way. But manage your side projects like projects are managed professionally Mm -hmm. in organizations. So coming to that... uh, Keep
0: milestones and coming to that how are professionally like how does an industry work like when you like in the college you don't get to know what you'll be doing really outside in, in the industry so when you go out in an industry when a person a fresher goes out in the industry he might face a lot of problems like uh, uh, he wouldn't understand the CI, CD pipeline he wouldn't understand the testing yeah. so uh, what what would you recommend how to get started on that and how to get an experience for that?
1: So the best uh, thing to do this is is actually again, like I said, choose internships wisely.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Choose internships where you get maximum exposure. Mm -hmm. That is your first step. And even within your college projects, uh, don't look at college projects to be successful. That's not their aim. Uh, College projects are meant to fail. They should fail. Mm -hmm. But they should give you at least 100 lessons in that failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So try and, even if they take longer, try and manage those projects like an industry project would be managed. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, start with test driven development during your college, whenever you hit the industry outside, mm-hmm. you'll already be familiar with yeah. what TDD is. Mm-hmm. So you'll be in habit of writing tests. Mm-hmm. So getting those good habits in place is what is important. So use your college time, college projects to get those habits in place. Mm -hmm. I don't look at completing the projects, that shouldn't be the aim.
0: Right. So, suppose uh, I have a project in mind and it requires some skills that I currently do not possess and I think it is very tough, so for example, I want to make a bot that automatically edits my videos, for example, Yeah. and so for that I need knowledge of maybe a lower level language to make it faster, like like C++, like Golang, like Java. And I would need the knowledge also of having videos, video knowledge, how it's encoded, how it is decoded, etc. Or like when we were discussing how to do end-to-end encryption for an audio, for a video. So how would you suggest someone goes and learn learns those things? Because it's quite intimidating to anyone that I would have to code in C++. So it's, it's a bit tough. It's not that easy as Python. Python is easy. So.
1: Yeah. So uh, one thing is, you know, with today's uh, day and age and the kind of resources you guys have at your fingertips mm-hmm. uh, this actually shouldn't come up as an issue as to mm-hmm. where you go and learn because right. there are infinite possibilities for where you can go and learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aspect of what to learn and right. whether that will be intimidating or not if you use your initial years of college wisely and show up on your fundamentals
2: mm-hmm.
1: then whether it is C++ or JavaScript or any other programming language, it won't really you know bother you. Mm-hmm. If okay. you're sure about programming logic, if you know how to solve a problem mm-hmm. using algorithm and logic, then whether that logic is written in Pascal or Fortran or C or Java, it won't really matter. Mm-hmm. So, first thing that you need to get imbibed in your heads is that languages don't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, every language has certain... Good point, certain capabilities, certain shortcomings. Mm-hmm. So, some things may take longer to do in certain language, it may be shorter in some other language, but every, anything that can be put down in pseudo code can be programmed with any programming language. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: okay. Yeah. So, that's because I have gotten questions from like my juniors that they, the problem they face is like, they. Actually get intimidated by languages, so that's the so thing. the ability to think in
1: pseudocode is is what you need to get and
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, whenever we actually start our computer science journeys wherever so we are first thing we are taught is that flowcharts and actual mm-hmm. pseudocode. Yeah. Now, as long as you retain the ability to think like that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: think in pseudocode first
2: mm-hmm.
1: before you start writing actual code, mm-hmm. then you will not no longer be intimidated of languages. Because in pseudocode, if you figured out how to solve it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then implementing it is just a Google search away. Right. How to write this particular loop in C, you can just Google that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: As long as you know what to do in that loop. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that is one part. The other is something called design patterns.
2: Right.
1: Okay, so one is the algorithms and data mm-hmm. structures, that's the basic building block. And then how to put them together in design patterns. Knowledge of design patterns, trying to use those design patterns as early as possible mm-hmm. in your projects is also important. Okay. Uh, say, a simple application, if you're building, mm-hmm. you can actually make, uh, you know, with, make, make two without breaking it into 10 modules.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you follow a standard design model, if you follow an MVC pattern,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or if you follow a standard design pattern in, say, Python, also, if you follow an object oriented pattern, instead of putting everything in one .py file,
2: mm-hmm. that will
1: become your coding style. Right. Okay, so thinking in pseudocode, knowledge of design patterns, these two things will make sure that you are no longer afraid of any language. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So, uh, uh, so next thing is, uh, what is your preferred tech stack as of now? What's the most? Uh, my tech
1: preferred tech stack changes almost every six months. <laughs> but uh, as on today, I am uh, working with uh, Python, Flask, Django, mm-hmm. and on the machine learning side, I am uh, tending towards Scikit-Learn. Mm-hmm. And we actually, since you are working on automated machine learning, so we are using Scikit-Learn pipelines mm-hmm. to automate that entire process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally don't really like to use Jupyter notebooks. Okay. So I do my Python coding outside of mm-hmm. Jupyter Notebooks and the Anaconda environment. I work primarily on Linux, although mm-hmm. for work you still have to boot into Windows. But mm-hmm. well, That's
0: more of a painful experience than, <laughs> than anything else. <laughs> right. So, so uh, as you said, your text stack changes constantly. And that's the thing that I want to tell to everyone also that don't stick to one text stack. Like people do mon and they then stick to mon stack and yeah. then they don't develop the habit of learning more things.
1: So I have done as I said. We started off doing Cobol programming and then mm. moved to Java, then to JSP, then to Spring and Hibernate frameworks. Mm. Then we came to PHP. Mm. So done programming in every PHP framework possible. <laughs> then came to JavaScript and did Node and yeah. JavaScript. Python has been continuous throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, within Python, both Django, Flask and then now machine learning side. Mm. So, uh, as long as you have a breadth of this tech stack with you, you'll be able to solve any kind of problems.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Try and uh, you know, broaden your tech stack as much as possible. Mm.
0: So, uh, lastly, the few things. Uh, first of all, wanted to you know more about your job as a CTO at a company and what is what does your day look like as a CTO and do you get to learn more things? While in your job or or do you do it in your side projects? Yeah, so uh, both. I do learn in my side
1: projects Mm -hmm. and that's my primary source of learning. Mm -hmm. But I tend to choose my side projects also uh, in a manner that, you know, it it kind of gels with my job a little. So uh, since as you go senior in your roles, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to shoulder other kind of responsibilities Mm -hmm. more than just uh, learning the technology side of things. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, as a CTO also, I, I tend to be hands-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still lucky, like to code <laughs> and I still work uh, at least in the initial POC stage. I would do the POCs myself and try and okay. first flesh, flesh out the architecture of a product before I give it to the dev team to actually start working on it. Mm-hmm. And then a major share of my time goes into taking architectural decisions. Mm-hmm. What tech stack to use. Okay. Uh, how to deploy it, what design pattern to use, whether to, you know, at what stage do we start testing, how do I set up the deployment pipeline, where to deploy, Mm -hmm. what kind of resources, what kind of machines, what hardware, sizing of those machines, uh, monitoring our servers. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole host of activities which, uh, you know, you can classify as development and ops Mm-hmm. So as the CTO, both these verticals fall under me as also uh, actual customer delivery. Right. So there are always uh, client engagements that are on because we have a services business mm-hmm. and a product development
2: okay. business.
1: So there are two separate sides of it. And the services mm-hmm. business, there is always constant client engagement and mm-hmm. delivery to clients. Right. So doing kind of a uh, oversight on what is going out. Mm-hmm. And then there is always new business development, speaking to new clients, proposing new solutions, mm-hmm. uh, architecting new solutions for them.
0: Right.
1: That's another aspect of the job and which is something that I really love doing.
0: That's amazing. And so uh, you work at, should I call it a startup? It is a startup, it is definitely. A startup.
1: It's a very small uh, company that way. We are just mm-hmm. a 60-member team.
0: And what do you think is the difference between working in a startup or working in a big company like big five companies, Google, Amazon, Microsoft? So the
1: biggest advantage in a startup is that you you have a host of things that you would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, there are no kind of rigid enclosures or boundaries. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pace of work is really fast. Right. There's very little bureaucratic red tape, so decisions will come a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of flexibility to what you want to do and how you want to do it there's less legacy baggage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I say legacy baggage, it means, you know, you, if you have something which is already running and there yeah. are billion people using it,
0: you cannot just... you
1: can't just go and make yeah. changes to it. Uh, so at times you may find that something is, you know, so clunky. For example, Amazon mm-hmm. interface. Now yeah. it's really clunky compared to a lot of really good uh, e-commerce platforms that you have now. Yeah. But Amazon really can't go and take sudden decisions mm-hmm. and change their technology style or change the way their uh, front works.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have a lot of legacy baggage in large companies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at, at a starter level or at a level uh, where you're going in and joining in as a fresher, mm-hmm. there are a lot of learning opportunities there if you are you know, in that kind of a bracket where you're sent on courses, sent on these things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But for the majority of people, The learning really stops when you join these places. They have so-called training programs and everything else, Mm -hmm. but the kind of learning that you get in a startup will be very different. Mm -hmm. Uh, There won't be rigid enclosures or verticals in which you'll work. Mm -hmm. As a developer, you will have to set up your own machine on the cloud, you'll be doing kind of entire DevOps yourself. You may be writing your tests, you may be executing those tests, mm-hmm. you may be doing data validation also, you may be creating your stories and on the scrum board.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you'll be doing the entire breadth and width of activities mm-hmm. yourself. That's the biggest advantage of working in a startup. Disadvantage, if you don't have a very good set of you know, people mentoring you, mm-hmm. you may pick up a lot of bad habits. Mm-hmm. So in In large organizations, the procedures are well set. Uh, rules are very well set, but they are set because of a reason, they they work, that's why they've been set.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you'll pick up uh, a lot of good habits there. Mm.
0: So you told to choose your internships wisely. Yeah. Uh, how do we go about that? How do we choose?
1: I would recommend if you have, uh, say, on an average you would do about three internships mm-hmm. in your during your engineering. Maybe say a one or two month internship, then a two or three months internship oh, and a six months, six months internship. I would recommend doing this at least two of them with a startup or a small size company, mm-hmm. and one of them with a large okay. company. Get an exposure to both. Mm-hmm. Not everybody fits in a startup kind of environment. Not everybody fits in that environment. Right. Uh, try and learn as much as possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Don't try and you know uh, forecast that this is what I like. Uh, you really don't know what you like right now mm-hmm. because. Say, if you imagine that you you like working on say full stack development mm-hmm. and you go and join somewhere as a full stack developer and after one year you realize there's no growth here I, I, mm-hmm. I don't like this mm-hmm. have have options, try out different things
2: mm-hmm.
1: so if in one internship you've gone and worked on you know machine learning project, the second one go and work on blockchain, the third one go and work on web development, mm-hmm. get an idea of what the industry, industry. is. Mm-hmm. In different organizations, possibly different industry verticals.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And how to choose a company? Like how do we know if you'll we'll have good mentors out there or not? Uh, speak to
1: people, find out, look mm-hmm. at their LinkedIn profiles, check out their GitHub repositories. If there is a person who, you know, who does all these side projects, he'll have right. uh, this thing. So unless a person is active outside of his office, mm-hmm. he won't be a good mentor. Right. Uh, personality wise also you'll get to identify good programmers very easily. Mm-hmm. You know, very easy to spot in the sure. group also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So
0: uh, what do you think? Does college basements is a good option for this? Or do you think we should do our own research and then choose our own company?
1: Both depends on the college, firstly. But mm-hmm. uh, both, uh, if you get a good company out of college placements, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, constantly reach out, network to people, speak to people in the industry. Mm-hmm. When you go on hackathons, connect with people, maintain and you know touch with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Keep in touch with your seniors. They would have gone and joined uh, twenty different companies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So get to know what is the work environment there, mm-hmm. uh, and then make uh, informed, intelligent choices. Mm-hmm. Don't let the uh, CTC or the money or salary be a factor in the mm-hmm. initial years.
0: Right.
1: Uh, unless it is a compulsion of some kind uh, don't let that be a factor. Okay.
0: And uh, some financial advice like, as you are doing some financial also. Yeah. So I wish somebody had given me that advice <laughs> when I was your age. So if we start in a company what should we how should we manage our expenses? Like right now we are very young we don't have as such a responsibility we don't have expenses so uh, save as much as you can mm-hmm.
1: but again live your life
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, it's important to remain balanced mm. you do need to save intelligently so save as much as possible but also enjoy your life i mean this age also won't come back again mm. so as long as you can maintain that uh, work life balance uh, and you are in habit of doing that uh, since your college days mm-hmm. It will possibly sustain you through your uh, career as well. Mm -hmm. But make intelligent financial decisions as early as possible. Start saving, start investing Mm -hmm. as early as possible. Set aside 15, 20, 30% of your earnings, whatever they are for purely investment Mm -hmm. purposes. When you are young, you can invest with a long-term horizon Mm -hmm. and in aggressive instruments you can afford to take more risk. You don't really have commitments coming up. So choose uh, you know, higher risk investments with longer time horizons. Mm-hmm. Uh, study the power of compounding.
2: Mm,
1: right. And make use of compounding. The biggest advantage you have when you're starting early is that you can really compound money. Mm. Even if you start with a small amount, you can really turn it into a very large chunk of money by the time you, you know, think of uh, retiring or you really have some responsibilities for which you require money. Mm. Uh, you could use the power of compounding. Try a simple exercise, take an excel sheet and just make sure that okay if you have a sum of 1 lakh rupees and you can earn 300 rupees out of it
0: mm-hmm. in a day. Mm-hmm. How is the percentage?
1: Uh, in a day? Percentage 300 is 0.03. Mm-hmm. So 0.03% return is one can expect to make yep. without taking too much of risks. Mm-hmm. So if you can do consistently you can get this kind of returns. And you keep adding this money without spending it to your base capital, mm-hmm. see what the amount becomes after, uh, say, five years,
0: 5
1: years or 10 years, mm-hmm. then see what it becomes after 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm. So I uh, saw somewhere, like if you save around 10,000 every month, let's say 10,000 or 5,000, after like 20 years, I guess it turns into almost 6 to 8 crores. Yeah. And That's the power of
1: compounding. That's the power of compounding. So, utilize that. You have that, uh, you know, advantage with you. Mm -hmm. But don't let this determine the career of, you know, Mm -hmm. path that you will take. Mm -hmm. You you have money is important, right? But Mm -hmm. quality of life is equally important. So, concentrate on that as well.
0: Okay. So, uh, you were our oldest guest in the podcast series. Everyone was a bit younger. You had some experience but you had a host of experiences and I hope it was informative to everyone who was watching. It was very informative to me and I hope you also enjoyed uh, being here. Definitely. And giving such advices to people in our college is really important because everyone is going after just doing two months courses and then getting a job and then just sticking to Dart life and I, I think we need to change that a bit. We need to have some open source culture. We need to have some projects, some coding uh, practices and for that we started this.
1: Yeah, so uh, take a look at what uh, the best universities in the world do and try and emulate what an MIT would do. Mm-hmm. We have better people, better talent than what you'd find at MIT. Mm-hmm. It's just that their output looks a lot better because mm-hmm. they have you know better avenues and facilities. Mm. Talent wise or uh, you know capability wise I'm pretty sure our universities are at par if not better than them. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Okay thank you. Thanks.